Today's program is brought to you by the Farmer's Market Farm Stand at 76 Montauk Highway in West Hampton, New York. That is 76 Montauk Highway, West Hampton, New York. Open in April through the season. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sharp and Hot. I am your host, Emily Peterson, broadcasting to you live from Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Full disclosure, that ad at the top of the show is my dad. My dad owns the Farmer's Market Farm Stand, and if you are in the Long Island, South Fork area, otherwise referred to more popularly known as the Hamptons, please stop by and tell him that you know me and that you listen because he's awesome and all the people he has working there for him are wonderful human beings. And when he hears this, he's going to be swelling with pride. Although I have explained to him how to listen to podcasts, and I'm not sure he fully grasps how to use iTunes yet. So whether or not he hears this is still up in the air, unless he's listening live, in which case, hi, Daddy. So, um, you guys, I confronted a major fear this week, which is, I don't know if I mentioned that I'm taking guitar lessons. There's this really awesome guitar, well, music school near me uh, out in New Jersey. And one of the things about living in the suburbs is that you can, like, drive to a little music school and take some lessons. So, when I was younger, I learned how to play a few chords and put a few, few chords in order together. But I went to a conservatory art school. And so when we had open mics at SUNY Purchase, the other people who were performing were really good and had like auditioned to get there. I kid you not, one of the people was Regina Spector. So I was never getting up on the open mic stage to play a song behind people who were playing in the like the Lincoln Center, you know, jazz band or whatever. So I let the guitar go. I forgot about it. A few years ago, my husband bought me one for our wedding anniversary because he heard me say that I liked it. I like kind of plunked around on it, but I didn't take lessons. And then it ended up in a box up in the attic. And then for some reason, oh, I know what it was. I hope he doesn't get mad at me for sharing this. I don't think so. We're, this is a very open show, right? My husband and I decided to pursue some couples therapy because we were about to kill each other. And if you're about to kill your partner, I cannot highly recommend the process enough because it forces you to sit in the same room with each other and get to the bottom of what was bothering you. And what was bothering us, it turns out, is that we don't do like enough fun stuff, just the two of us. We got really distracted by being parents and life and all that. So instead of therapy, we decided to take guitar lessons and it was way, way better. He has since gone back to work. And so I am the one who's taking the guitar lessons now because he is back to work after the winter break from gardening. But the other night is a very long winded way of telling you on Friday night, I opened for the high school rock band at the music school. And it was awesome. I spent the entire day like talking myself into going because I was like kind of congested and I was a little tired and I didn't really want to go and everything in me was like don't you could you could so easily just bail. And then I got a text message from my guitar teacher which said, "Everyone else has bailed. It's just you for the opening act." So I knew I wasn't getting out of it. So I went and during the sound check, the kids were playing and they were terrible. And I was like, "And I'm terrible." And no one cares because the audience is going to be filled with their parents. So I got up on stage and I plunked my way through my three songs and I did it. 
And it was a really amazing feeling that is no less than 20 years in the making. I'm totally going to do it again. I have lost like that sense of like real fear has gone away because now I'm like, what's the worst that's going to happen? I'm not going to catch on fire. So I did it. So if there's something that you're thinking about doing and you're like, oh, I don't know, just do it because no one even remembers that I was there. They remember their kids singing whatever. Some Bonnie Raitt song that the lady, that girl sang. Anyway, I highly recommend it. I'm still like on cloud nine that I did it and there are moments I was like, I literally can't believe that this is happening. This is cool. So that's my weekend story. Um, the other thing that's happening is the baby chicks are about two weeks old and the meat birds are three times the size as the egg layers. So when I pour food into the feeder, all the meat birds go running and the poor little egg laying chicks still look like babies compared to these teenagers, even though they're all exactly the same age. So if you want to follow along with the egg or chicken hold meat bird chicken and egg process i'm writing a uh, journal dispatches called the chick dispatches for edible long island so if you go to edible you can see that i'm sort of updating in real time what it's like to raise meat birds which is very exciting and i'm really trying really hard not to get attached to them or find them cute because they are going to be food okay so that's my update Joining me on the line from far away in Cumberland Island, Georgia, I have joining me Chef Whitney Ataka, who is the executive chef of the Greyfield Inn. Hello, Chef. Hello, Emily. How are you? I'm fabulous. How are you? I'm great. Did you hear? Were you able to hear that all that rambling at the top of the show? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you also so the Cumberland Island Cumberland Island, Georgia. Tell us about this idyllic place because the photographs are amazing. Sure. Cumberland Island is the southernmost island off the coast of Georgia. It's also a national park and a national seashore. So very sort of remote and isolated. There's no way to drive to the island. It's a private island, so you have to take either a boat with the national park system, or if you're lucky enough to be staying at the Grayfield Inn, which is where I uh, run the culinary program, then you would take a private ferry with us. This is like everything I look for in a, vo- in a vacation. The idea that you can go to a national park and have incredible food is like, that's revolutionary, I think. And you also oversee the garden there, right? The Gray- is it called Grayfield Garden? We, it's the Grayfield Garden, and I work with, we have a really talented team of um, gardeners, uh, Ryan Graycheck and Maya Velasco, and they run the garden because Lord only knows if I was trying to run a garden and a kitchen. <laughs> At the same time, right? <laughs> there would probably be a disaster. I have a bit of a black thumb, which I guess is appropriate since I cook vegetables. Right. They meet <laughs> their end with you either them. way. Right. <laughs> so tell me, tell me about your path to becoming a chef because you have a wonderful, fascinating story and we share a love of the movie Amelie. Oh, absolutely. So um, I get long-winded with this, so cut me off when you need to. No, take your time. Take your time. I love love good stories. So I'm a California girl. I grew up in the high desert of Southern California, where it's literally a food desert, right? (laughs) Because it's a desert. So I didn't grow up. uh, My mother was a great cook, but I didn't grow up around really amazing food. Um, And I went to Berkeley for my undergraduate degree. And it was there, sort of with my love of everything French, that I found my way into a restaurant. I also found myself living across the street from a very fabulous grocery store, Berkeley Bowl. So I started working at this little French crepery. It had maybe 18 seats, and I applied for a waitressing position. And he could sort of 
see through the fact that I'd never waited tables. I'd lied on my resume. <laughs> and he instead put me in the kitchen. His name was Eric Leroy, and he was from Toulouse, France, and he did Britney-style galettes and crepes. So he pulled me into the kitchen. I was 19 years old, and I, I just fell in love with cooking. I sort of learned the idea of anticipation. I learned how to make and prep everything. I was the dishwasher. I was the coffee maker. I was the everything. And every night after service, he and I would sit down and share a meal. Um, and he would sort of cook anything that I wanted off the menu. And I worked there for about a year and a half. And it was just this absolutely amazing process of learning about restaurants in a very unique and intimate way. And uh, it kind of shaped who I was in a kitchen. So it sounds like you had an incredible mentor in him. And I talk a lot to chefs about the power of having somebody over you who can sort of guide you on your way. Do you think you could have done what you've done without that so early in your career? Well, you know, it, it kind of like it showed me something that I was uniquely good at and very passionate about. And he sort of opened my eyes to what really good food was in a really amazing environment. It was a very clean kitchen. You know, if you don't know what you're getting yourself into and you walk into a random restaurant for a job, I don't know what the odds are that you're going to land in a really amazing sort of workspace. You know, he used to source his flowers from, he actually sourced his buckwheat from Canada because he thought it was a better quality than what he could get. Um, anywhere else. So it was those little examples of how to really sort of find unique products and the care. And so he sort of shaped my perspective on what a really great kitchen was. And so it was from there that I could sort of grow and sort of move forward and um, find great restaurants. So how did you know that it was time to move on from there? Because that's another sort of turning point in people's career that I'm fascinated by. Well, you know, so I can say for sure that at the time that I worked for him, I fell in love with restaurants, but I didn't know that I wanted to be a chef yet. So, you know, I also was making, oh, what, maybe, I don't know, 7 or $8 an hour right. <laughs> in the Bay Area. Total so living wage. My, my, <laughs> my bank account told me to move on. <laughs> so I had an opportunity. I actually went on to wait tables for a little while in San Francisco at kind of a touristy spot. Um, and when I graduated from Berkeley, it was like, okay, I'm going to go get my real job was sort of my mind frame. And what was and your so major I, at Berkeley? Uh, so I was really into archaeology and anthropology. That's so interesting. One of my very, very best friends who is the daughter of a chef and is now the director of the kitchen at the food studies department at NYU. Her degree is also in archaeology and anthropology. I think that there's like a clear, I mean, my love of history and my love of sort of that, that whole side of me really comes into play into kitchens. Like if you see how I sort of research and how I work, it, it, it really comes up. It really drives me um, in a lot of ways. So I think there's a unique correlation to be had between chefs and archaeologists. Right. So did you get your real job in archaeology? So I got a real job, and I ended up moving to San Diego, and I was working in the um, Historic Preservation Department for the city of San Diego, and I was doing that, and I was getting, I, I hate to say it, but I got bored. So I learned how to move really fast in restaurants. You know, I'd learn sort of the, way, the, the work mentality of a restaurant. And I, I enjoyed the job I had. I don't want to say anything badly about it. But it was sort of like I missed 
restaurants. I missed the, the, the energy of a restaurant. So I started moonlighting. In the evenings, I was working for a pastry chef named Burl Ann Bird. And there, again, I was waiting tables, and that was in San Diego. And so... Um, move forward from that, it was actually my move to the South where I got very disciplined and focused and took all of these different experiences and realized that I was going to become a chef. So what brought you to the South? An ex-boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> it's always it's always some, a romantic interest, isn't it? You know, I get in trouble because I say I use real job in finger quotes too, the same way that you do, and I get in trouble. People are like, I'm trying to be funny, and I can tell that you're doing the same thing, and people are like, don't diminish what you do. And it's like, yeah. no, because if you're trained to do, like, I you know, went to school for graphic design and fine arts, and then I went to school to be a teacher. And I joked that I would, you know, I need like, I need to get a real job, but I, I just want to say, I can't imagine that you're diminishing what your true experience is. Of course. Otherwise no. I'll get angry. Emails. No one works harder than what restaurant industry folks. Right. And, that's um, the irony. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because, you know, I think about the question, like I was thinking about this question, you know, like, did you always want to be a chef? And I think about the fact that I wasn't exposed to the idea of great chefs as a young child. It wasn't a, a career path that I realized I could go down. We didn't have amazing restaurants where I'm from. We had some really great, unique, uh, mostly Mexican restaurants that kind of stand out in my mind. But there wasn't the idea of being a chef, especially the way there is now, you know, with television. You know, there was Julia Child and there was Jacques Pepin, and there, those were amazing role models. And my mother clearly had tuned into them. But I still didn't have that concept or that knowledge or that understanding. And I don't think I could have either because... There wasn't local foodways where I was from because it was the desert. So there was there was never this ability to sort of piece these things together. I had to sort of go on this path and find it. Um, so so yeah. So what we do is an amazing career path, and it's definitely a real job. <laughs> um, I actually think the real job quote. Some ideal real jobs aren't really real jobs compared to what people do in restaurants. So, right. um, I always think of that yeah. scene in Office Space when they're being audited. And the guy looks at me and says, so what do you do here? And he's like, well, I start by showing up 15 minutes late. <laughs> and that's what it looks like to have a real job. So, yeah, okay, so you follow. You, I, I imagine he was your then boyfriend when you went to the South. You didn't follow an ex-boyfriend to the South, right? I found an ex-boy. Uh, yeah, and he. Well, he was a then boyfriend. Oh, okay. then he became an ex-boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> so, did you go straight to working in restaurants when you got? Where you did you go to Savannah? Where was it that you landed? Mm-hmm. I went to Athens, Georgia. Oh, to Athens, right? Sorry. So it was sort of there. It was actually. It was. I moved to the South, right? And I was like, I fell in love with the history. I fell in love with the culture. I. I really sort of like immersed myself in like what is the South? What is this place? It's all new to me. I'm a California girl. And so I, it was actually this trip I planned to DC. So I fell, I fell in love with Southern food and, and Southern people. And I planned this trip to DC and the whole time I'm in DC, I'm planning on where I'm eating, what I'm doing. And it was sort of this epiphany where, wait a second, like, this is what I love. This is what I should be doing. All the things I've been doing sort of lead into this. So I decided to like go for it. And so I, uh, Hugh Atchison was, uh, owned a restaurant five and 10, very famous now. And it was, you know, pretty, I mean, he was nominated for James Beards at that point, but he wasn't sort of a national figure the way he is now. And so I kind of walked into his restaurant and this is in 2005, I believe. I walked into his restaurant and said, I'm looking for a job. And they said, 
we're not looking for any waitresses right now. And I said, I want to work in the kitchen. Oh, wow. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And so um, they were like, well, Hugh's over at the bar. And so I walked over and, you know, my resume was spotty with, you know, different things. My first restaurant, I worked in a kitchen. But beyond that, I'd been mostly a waitress. And so I think he saw sort of, you know, between my education at Berkeley and my experience traveling, I think he sort of had an interest in what I would bring to the table. So he hired me. And you did stages during that time up in New York, right? Mm-hmm. So you made this this turn to be like, okay, I'm going to pursue this. And you throw yourself in. You went to uh, Blue Hill at Stone Barnes and La Bernadette and Per Se. Those are major mm-hmm. names. So, you know, for me, what I was definitely taught, especially by my mother, was to build a foundation. You know, oh, there's an incredible storm happening here right now. Sorry, there's very loud lightning and thunder. Oh, um, wow. But anyway. <laughs> How exciting. <laughs> It's the, the south, and thunderstorms are beginning for the summer. But, um, you know, I was taught to have a very, very sort of strong foundation of education. And for me, what is that? Especially at the point that I decided to become a chef, I was 26. You know, it's like, what do I do to be the best I can be in my career field is to try to work for the people that are the best in this career field and try to expose myself to what they do that's amazing and learn from the best that there is. So I ambitiously sought as many sort of stages and opportunities as I could to learn. Can I ask you a personal question that you can totally pass on if it's if you don't want to answer it? Sure. Um, I'm curious to know how like how much you had to hustle. Like where if you were living in Georgia, how did did you like sleep on people's couches? Because I feel like people listen to this. It's like if they want to do the same thing, how did you make that happen from a like? You mentioned your bank account earlier. How do you make that happen? Sure. I mean, scrimping and saving. I So I, you know, I made the choice. I actually went to culinary school at the same time that I was working for um, Hugh. So I was broke. Right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was getting paid line cook wages. So for things like um, Stone Barns, I actually stayed um, at a connection. So it's kind of like, it's, you know, it's like, you know people who know people. So I ended up getting to stay with a really fabulous woman, Kate Barney, who used to be uh, an owner of Macienda. I think she's been on Heritage Radio before. I know she Kate Barney. Nice- Kate Barney's yes. my friend. <laughs> yeah, she's wonderful, right? And amazing. And so I, I, through, I knew, so Olivia Sargent used to own a restaurant in Athens. And so she connected me to Kate Barney. And there I got to sort of stay at this house. It's sort of like your work ethic can carry you through, I think. If you find the right people who are willing, if you say, hey, I'm going to go work for free, then they might be like, hey, okay, you can sleep on my couch for free. So, yeah, it's a little of that sort of like scrimping, saving, finding a place to stay, and being willing to work as much as possible. Because, you know, there's opportunities if you if you really push them. I appreciate your saying that, articulating that as well as you did, because... I think it's good for people to hear it over and over and over again, that it isn't all the glamour of television that we see chefs, that there's a lot of work and sacrifice that goes into that. Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay, so we have to take a quick break. But when we come back, you have shared a recipe for squash escabash, and I'm hoping you can walk us through it and share some other things that are coming out of the garden soon and this summer that you're looking forward to. Great. Okay, we'll be right back after the break.
Today's program is brought to you by the Farmer's Market Farm Stand at 76 Montauk Highway, West Hampton, New York. Providing local fruits and vegetables, heirloom tomatoes, local shellfish, handmade Vermont maple syrup, and our very own honey produced by our very own honeybees here on the east end of Long Island. Ask us about our imported cheese selection as well as our artisanal bacon and sausage. And don't forget our locally baked breads and desserts. Open in April through the season, Farmer's Market Farm Stand welcomes back our returning customers with the very best of all things locally grown and produced. Come by and visit on your way out east, just minutes from the West Hampton train station and the Hampton Jitney. Make sure to fill your weekend in the Hamptons with all that the East End's farms have to offer. The Farmer's Market Farm Stand, again, is at 76 Montauk Highway in West Hampton, New York. Welcome back to Sharp, Sharp and Hot, everyone. I am Emily Peterson. Joining me by phone from Cumberland Island, Georgia, and the Grayfield Inn is Whitney Otaka. Welcome back. Hello. Hello. Okay, so uh-huh. you have sent us a recipe for squash escabeche, which I am going to put up on our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Tell me about this recipe. Sure. So, you know, um, I kind of wandered down to our garden to see what was kind of popping up and what was in season for us here. And we're at the beginning of our squash and tomato season. And so we have these very beautiful petite little baby squash coming in. And I just get thrilled with those. You know, when it's change of season, you get really over enthusiastic about sure. <laughs> the new product. So, so what does escabeche of- mean exactly? So it's basically, it can be translated into sort of different variations in Spain or in Mexico, but basically it's the idea of using sort of an acidic marinade or kind of pickling brine to sort of enhance the flavor of meats or vegetables. Okay, so the fir- I love your first instruction because it's antithetical to everything that people see in modern recipes, which is cut the squash into various shapes. Not make sure they're all the same size, which I love. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, again, this goes kind of with the idea of I know that I'm getting my hands on all these little baby squash, but if you're going to a local farmer's market, maybe all they have are bigger sort of, you know, patty pans, or maybe they have zucchini, or maybe they have yellow squash. So this is really sort of a... Oh, we lost you. Oh, there you are. You're back. I'm sorry? I I lost you there for a second. I think the thunderstorm is taking over. Oh, (laughs) sorry. So what I was saying was, you know, basically it's like if you go to the farmer's market or you go, if you don't have a farmer's market and you go to a grocery store, you're going to find so many variations on what squash is, patty pans versus, you know, yellow squash versus zucchini. So the sizes are going to vary differently. So for me, when I have a baby squash that's only, you know, three or four inches, I like to save the integrity of the size, cut it in half. You know, but if you have a bigger zucchini, cut it, you know, how you want to in rounds or cut it in half and in half moons and different textures and sort of this type of dish are really nice. Okay. So then your next instruction is to build a wood fire. (laughs) Yeah. So that's another sort of ambiguous instruction. (laughs) I know. I love it. Depending on your skill set what type of grill you have. I I love wood grilling. I I just, I love the flavor it imparts my drink. 
have a wood fire grill. You know, if you can get outside and grill, it's the season for it. The weather's lovely. Get outside, light up that grill, and grill your squash. And then in the meantime, you make this beautiful citrusy, acidic dressing, and then you toss your finished grilled squash, grilled squash in that, right? That's correct. So after you grill the squash and mark it, you know, you can do two things. You know, this just can be served hot, like I said, room temperature or cold. So you can set your squash aside. You build this marinade. And I don't know if you hear that storm, but it's quite amazing. Yeah. Are you you safe? Um, Do we need to worry about you? No, I'm I'm pretty safe, but this is a, a good southern thunderstorm for your folks um, to be listening to. Um, so you you build this marinade, and basically, as soon as you know the squash is done, pull it off the grill and just toss it in this marinade, and there's going to be. <laughs> this really great sort of bright flavor. And so what I did with the recipe, too, is not just toss it in that marinade, but you add in some sort of fresh arugula. You can throw in some torn herbs. You can throw mint. You can throw cilantro into it. So it's almost like you can build it as a side dish. You can build it as sort of a salad. There's a lot of variations you can have with it. So I'm going camping, not this weekend, but next. And I'm wondering, will this hold in the marinade if I... Oh, no, because I would grill the squash at camp. So I could build the marinade at home, bring that with us, and then grill the squash at camp. That's what I'm going to do. Perfect. I mean, it's like, you know, essentially on some levels, almost like a vinaigrette, right? So you can just take that with you. And you can throw this on so many things. I mean, you could grill chicken and throw this on chicken. I mean, once you taste it, you'll see it's just really bright. It's really delicious. And uh, it's going anything well. So do you live out on the island or do you commute via boat every day? No, I live on the island. <laughs> is that amazing, or do you feel isolated? Um, you know, I I really love this island, and I don't think it would be a great living scenario for people who couldn't live in an isolated environment. You know, it's kind of like the old days. Like, if I knew toothpaste, it's sort of like a half-day's journey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, but, uh, that sounds perfect for me. I want to come and stage for you. <laughs> <laughs> you know who are very focused and driven like for me the food program really keeps me obviously very sort of immersed in having the garden here so for me it's a really dreamy scenario because there's not a lot of distractions there's not distractions from what I do in the kitchen on a daily basis so I mentioned the stardom of television and I learned that you competed on Bravo's Top Chef yes I was a Top Chef contestant I was on season 9 Texas how was it it was Wonderful. It was really amazing. Um, did you win? Really, I did not win. I wish I had won. Yeah. More people would know my name if I'd won. <laughs> <laughs> I came in second on, uh, on Cutthroat Kitchen. No one, no one oh. knows me. So, yeah. <laughs> but that's, that's different because Top Chef is a commitment to a season worth of filming, right? Well, I'm sorry, say it again. Top Chef, you, it's a whole season of personalities, right? It's not just a one-off 30-minute game show, right? Yeah, it's, you know, you get to sort of spend, you know, six to seven weeks with sort of the contestants that are on the show, and so you're kind of immersed in this environment. But for me, I mean, it's like Ed Lee was on my season, Aisha Aronson, and just so many talented chefs were were on the show with me. So I got to spend time with a lot of like-minded souls, which was fabulous. So what are your big plans for the future? What do you want to accomplish? Uh, For me personally, uh, the goal is to own my own restaurant. Um, I love the Graceville Inn, and I love Cumberland Island, but the the eventual goal is to get to the point where I have my own place completely. Uh, My husband actually um, is basically my co-chef, and uh, we want to open something together. Would it be on Cumberland Island? 
No, we, so we're looking in two places right now. The biggest places that are sort of offering opportunities to us are either Atlanta or Miami. Wow. How fun. Yeah. So these are more long-term goals. Like I'm definitely going to be at Grayfield Inn through the course of this year and into next year. And but you know, they, I'm very transparent with them, and they're very supportive of the fact that I'd like to get this to the point where I have my own place. So and when I you... I'm, I'm sorry. No, I'm go ahead. very passionate about. Um, so I love Southern cuisine, obviously, but I'm also really passionate about sort of Mexican food. I've studied um, kind of intensively in Mexico and taken on some projects sort of in that vein, and I'd like to bring back some of those flavors into my cooking. Obviously, with this recipe, you get a sense of that. And when you look into the garden, what are you excited for cooking this season? Oh, well, we're about to hit our tomato season, and I know it's tomatoes. Everyone knows tomatoes for the summer, but... As everybody knows as well, it can be a great tomato season. It can be a bad tomato season. So I'm crossing my fingers for a good one. So I'm excited for that. Um, just sort of the summer squash ahead, okra, eggplant, peppers. We had a really great project last year. We sort of grew our own paprika peppers and dried them and crushed them into our own paprika. Cool. And so I'm hoping to sort of get into that again. Um, we've been kind of working this sea salt project. We've kind of collect ocean water and uh, dry it out to make our own sea salt. So those type of projects sort of get me excited for the season ahead as well. I have got to make a point of getting down there before you depart because I would love. I, I feel like we have mutual friends in Kate, and I feel like we have so much in common. It's. I mean, this really is. Uh, it's a very unique, stunning place. It is. A very sort of unique culinary destination sort of in the context of Georgia. Being on the coast here, we have amazing fish. The shrimp are out of this world. I think they're the best shrimp you can get in the country, personally. Our shrimp season's just opened. Uh, the oysters, we get them right off the island. The clams are from the island. It's just, you, you should come down. It's excellent. It just seems like how I would describe, like, what I want my afterlife to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not an easy choice to eventually want to leave this island. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty dreamy, you know, and, you know, it's just like the natural surrounding is, it's inspiring, so. The hotel's website is grayfieldin.com. Whitney, you are Whitney, uh, are you Whitney Otaka on Twitter? Otaka, you got it. (laughs) All right. Thank you so, so much for coming on Sharp and Hot. Enjoy the thunderstorms. I'm so jealous your tomatoes are coming in. Mine are about two inches tall and shivering outside. We are having the slowest, (laughs) coolest spring in New Jersey and New York. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) You are super enthusiastic, and it's completely contagious, though. You have amazing things in your future, and thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you so much for having me on. Listeners, I am Chef Emily P on Twitter and Instagram. If you are taking pictures of your food anyway, use the hashtag sharp and hot and I will send you a cookbook from my collection and I love to see your pictures. Thank you to my dad for sponsoring Heritage Radio Network and the Farmer's Market Farm Stand. Thank you to Dave for engineering the show and to Malcolm as well. Thank you to Peter Shukoff for the show's theme song. Until next week, everybody, keep playing with fire and knives. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website, or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. 
To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.